Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, just a word of warning. Mess, aren't you? I'm not very tall either. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Hello, you are listening to Cambridge 105 Radio across the city and South Cambridgeshire. And now it's time for Bums on Seats. My name is Yossi Osman and joining me on the show today are Alistair Ryder. Hello. David Riley. Hello. And Lorcan O'Neill. Hello. We have a delightful show today featuring some very different cinematic delights. Attack the Block director Joe Cornish takes the helm in family adventure The Kid Who Would Be King. Nadine Labaki directs hard hitting child endangerment film Capernaum and we take a look at a Netflix comedy called The Breaker Upperers. Plus we are going to go all in on the pomp and ceremony of the 2019 Oscars telling you what our picks are if you care and discussing some of the past year's standouts. So plenty on the way but we're going to start the show by stumbling upon Excalibur. Something amazing happened. You who drew the sword. This realm faces mortal danger. There are four days until the solar eclipse when Morgana will enter the world of the living. And I'm supposed to stop her? That's ridiculous. I'm 12. Break my worries. This is the worst and best and most terrible, excellent thing that's ever happened to me. You know how to drive, Mario Kart. First film that we are looking at today is Joe Cornish's The King Who Would Be King. After tackling extraterrestrials in an inner city neighbourhood in Attack the Block, Cornish now turns his attention to Arthurian adventure in the modern world. Young Alex, played by Louis Ashbourne Circus, comes across the mythical sword and stone Excalibur. Joining up with Patrick Stewart as the infamous wizard Merlin, he and his friends become adventurous knights, ready to take on the wicked enchantress Morgana, played by Rebecca Ferguson. So, Alistair, um, Cornish, he seems to be good with young people. We can see from Attack the Block a few years ago, that was about teenagers. Now we're looking at at sort of kids uh, going off on an adventure. Is this one purely kids' fantasy action, or is there more to it than that? I think there is more to it than that. Um... I think that children will be mostly excited by it. The thing that I think lets it down, and I think the reason that it hasn't done particularly well at the box office is because the final half-hour battle seems to go on forever. It seems endless, and the excitement and entertainment that comes before just goes away, and it just starts dragging. Um, But looking aside from what a child would react to it, um, there is definitely stuff here for older viewers. I mean, Joe Cornish has said that it isn't about Brexit in interviews, but it very clearly has a Brexit uh, allegory uh, going through it, not least because the King Arthur legend is about a man who united a country that was divided in two. Mm -hmm. So there is definitely that uh, deeply ingrained into the story. And he says he doesn't do it, but like you say, it's quite obvious when you're watching the film that there is a little bit of a, as you say, Brexit allegory. Um, is it? Uh, does that take away from the sort of fantastical, adventure elements of the film, Lorcan? Um, I don't think so. He, um, it's very much in the opening, he sets it up that um, in a sort of, sort of comically childish way, with like a bunch of, like the... Alex on his way to school passes like a row of newspapers and they're all like gloom and misery on the front covers and it's like just just like over the top enough to like engage kids and be, be very obvious to adults but then once it like kind of sets that stuff up um, it, it goes away from the allegory and goes completely into like the kids adventure fantasy and it maintains it um, it maintains it throughout um, I, I think the script was very tight uh, the dialogues are very smart the characters are very engaging um, and it was very 
the, the visual storytelling was very efficient, and like there were certain points that even felt uh, Spielbergian. Um, but yeah, I completely agree with Alistair. It's like once the film, once the film reaches a satisfactory conclusion and the emotional peak is reached, it then tacks on another twenty-five minutes or so. Because the film is largely about um, the main character and his relationship with his father, whom he has never met, and that comes to a conclusion, and it feels satisfying. And then it's like, oh no, we've got the textbook standard adventure stuff that we still we still need to tick that box. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do we think then that that big action battle scene is unnecessary? Then, David, uh, I don't know if it's unnecessary. If you're trying to do the parallel between the the old Arthurian tale and then putting a modern twist on it, you you have to have the big confrontation between Arthur or Alex in this case uh, and his knights. Uh, there's a kind of mini confrontation at one point during the film and everyone else gets sidelined apart from Alex. You know, it's really good to see Louis Ashbourne Circus kind of standing up going, yes, I am the kid who should be king or would be king, whatever happens. Um, but he's there by himself and it's like the, the story of Arthur is that, you know, when they fall into isolation, this is when they crumble, this is when it falls apart. So it was good at the end to see them actually all together in the fight it did drag a little bit. Um, I think my main annoyance of it was that we didn't get enough of Merlin in the fight, who is played by both Patrick Stewart as old Merlin and Angus Imrie as young Merlin. Probably my favourite character in the entire film. Don't know about the other two. Strong, a strong, pretty fearless performance from my younger mm-hmm. actor as like the younger Merlin as well, definitely. Yeah, and for me, he stole pretty much every scene he was in, and I was perfectly content for him to do it. He kind of hit the the really kind of comedic aspect of Merlin that I want from someone playing that character, but he also had the, you know, he, he morphed into Patrick Stewart when he had to deliver the serious news, and I thought that was an absolutely genius idea. And it, it came across well, because he's actually handing out some good life lessons to the kids, and after it does all happen at the end, there is a kind of you've hit the emotional peak with the resolution of the story with his father but then there's a a kind of another one about hope for the future that's taking place where Patrick Stewart is telling the kids about how to grow up properly, how to kind of live their lives to make this the realm of the once and future king once more and I I thought that was quite nice. There's a danger sometimes with these kinds of stories that perhaps the director or the filmmakers are talking down to children especially with the kind of big life lesson of the film do we see that here or does it does it feel kind of sincere? Oh no it definitely feels sincere I mean Joe Carnish originated this story back in the early 80s when he was a 12 year old Um, he was in influenced by E.T. and Excalibur. And he was just like, well, what if we move the King Arthur story to the modern day? And pretty much the entire story as he imagined it as a 12-year-old is intact here. has a very sincere, childlike energy. And as I say, for the most part, it's very infectious. But it is just that final climactic action scene where it does lose some of its personality and it just feels like a generic, endless blockbuster, which is exactly the opposite of what it was before. And I also just want to say, um, throughout um, when they're discussing uh, the main character's relationship with his father, they keep on saying, oh, you look very much like your father. And because it's Andy Serkis' son in real life, I was, I was just expecting about to an Andy Serkis cameo, and yeah. there just isn't one. I did wonder if that was Andy Serkis's uh, son. I only just thought about that now. Anyway, um, but I think that there, there is a little bit of a need for that 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 battle sequence because we all know the story of Arthur and Merlin. We've seen it many times before. Sword in the Stone, BBC's TV series. Did anyone watch that, Merlin? I loved it. I thought it was great. Um, so this is a very... It's been done so many times. Is this perhaps a little bit cliche? We've seen it before kind of thing. I think with the... I think you could take out that entire last 25 minutes with the exception of the very, very last scene and you would lose absolutely nothing from the story and the characters. That's that's where that's where everything devolves and it, it does start to become a little patronising. Um, but up until that, it's like really a really strong, uh, appropriate adaptation that's just cleverly set up and thoroughly enjoyable and mm. like scaled down which is, again, why that final 25 minutes is so disappointing. But and it's it is, fun. Yeah, it is at least uh, slightly better than Guy Ritchie's King Arthur film from a couple of years ago. 
Oh, yeah. Was that the one with David Beckham making uh, David an Beckham's cameo telling yeah. he was the one who told uh King Arthur to pull the sword from the stone. Yes. Oh, what well, a cameo that oh, was. Well, yes. Why didn't he get the best supporting actor Oscar is my question. Well, I think we'd all be rather watching the kid who would be king. So it <laughs> sounds like it sounds like we're, we're fans of the film. I mean, it's fun. It's light. Charming. Um, it's very charming. I'd say it's a it's a good watch at the cinema, especially. I mean, it's half term. Is well, half term's nearly over, but it's a good one to take the kids to. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, a, it's a soft recommend. It's a soft recommend. <laughs> right, I think we'll end that there on that note then. Uh, so The Kid Who Would Be King, it's still showing at Light Cinema and uh, The View in Cambridge. And it is a certificate uh, PG, if I recall correctly. Yes. Today we are looking at director Nadine Labaki's Capernaum, which is nominated, and we will be talking about this a bit later, but it is nominated in the Best Foreign Language Film category at the Oscars. Um, it's about a little boy called Zane, uh, who, after running away from his negligent parents, committing a violent crime and being sentenced to five years in jail, he sues his parents for being born in protest of the life that they have given him. Um, Capernaum, it's it's a it's a fascinating film, I think. But Lorcan, let's come to you. Um, is it a bit too hard hitting? Um, I wouldn't say too hard hitting. It's uh, Nadine Labaki's filmmaking is certainly very powerful, and uh, there's a tremendous sense of putting you in the place with all these characters um, to the point where you feel genuinely concerned for the actors themselves because I believe she used a lot of um, non actors whose lives kind of closely parallel the story. Um, it is uh, it is fairly miserable, but obviously that's all to a purpose. And there's a really great framing device. They use the courtroom drama as a framing device for all the stories, and it sets up things very cleverly. Um, I feel that I think at at certain points, um, Labaki let the actors kind of take over and improvise a little bit. I think in the second half. Um, there is a bit too much of that, and it does kind of lose the really strong narrative focus it has in the first half, but then it wins it back at the end. Um, so I'd say it's it's exactly as pretty much hard-hitting as they intended it to be. I think that's a pretty strong success. But like you say, it, it's with a purpose. Um, you mentioned there, I think all may, most of the actors in this film have uh, are first-time actors. This is their kind of film debut. Does that kind of add to the sense of realism that we get from Capernaum, Dave, I'm looking at you. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I I found this a very very hard film to watch, especially on a kind of Friday afternoon. The working week is done. I, I want to just kind of relax, and instead I, I'm being pummeled. It felt like by the film. It's such a, an emotional film, and a lot of it is down to the the cast um, that's been put in place here. Uh, I, I, again, I don't know the mix of people who've been trained to act and the, the people that she's just cast because their lives are mimicking it. Uh, but all of them, for me, they all seem to know what they were doing, the way to do it. I, by equal parts, found um, uh, Zayn Al-Rafair, who's playing the main character Zayn, so giving him the same name, I found him equally parts kind of charming. You know, he's a really nice young kid. He really cares about his brothers and sisters, and that comes across very early on in the film because it, it's part of the separation of the family that, that really hurts him and drives him to this eventual spiral into the violent crime. But you also see parts of him that are horrible and nasty, and I, you know, he turns on a dime, and it's really impressive to watch on screen, and also horrible to realise that this is probably an accurate reflection of the life that he's having to live uh, in the character 
hopefully not the boy himself, but it's the kind of thing where you can't help but wonder afterwards. And, you know, like I said, it kind of took my emotions, drained them out of me, stamped on them a bit, gave them back, and I was kind of crippled at times by the performances. Mm-hmm. It was all really, really illuminating. Mm-hmm. Um, child performances like that, he has a lot to carry, Zane, in this film. Um, and like you say, he, it's a very powerful performance and it's very moving. Um, how much can we credit Nadine Labucky with that in her in terms of her direction, Alistair? Well, I think, because I'm considerably less of a fan of the film uh, right, than okay. everybody else. Um, but I think that the one thing that it can be credited is the child performances. I mean, mm-hmm. we've mentioned Zane. We haven't mentioned the, uh, the little toddler yes. who gives one of the best her toddler performances in cinema <laughs> history. Um, but yeah, outside the strengths of the child performances, um, I don't know, I felt like the film, it left me unmoved because I felt it was trying so hard to demonstrate how harrowing this situation was. And Does situ- it not feel real to you, then? No, the, the situation is naturally harrowing. Mm-hmm. But it felt like uh, Nadine Labaki was just throwing the kitchen sink at the screen in her attempts to try and make Western audiences cry. It felt like the grit of the story was sort of compromised by a sort of Spielbergian sentimentality that I just... It felt like it was just trying to manipulate me into crying instead of accurately conveying um, the situation as it was. And, yeah, it just left me feeling cold. Um, the closest comparison I have is a charity TV advert but in 30 seconds, those are deliberately manipulative for a good cause, whereas this was just deliberately manipulative in order to win awards and make Western Oscar voters cry. Um, well, I'm not sure I agree with that, but let's come to the others, um, because do we feel like it's manipulative? Do, do we think that she, she's being manipulative in how she's portraying this story? Because to me, it was almost like a documentary. I... Um, uh, I, I I disagree. I don't think uh, I get a lot of flack for disliking the uh, Studio Ghibli film uh, Grave of the Fireflies, which okay, I, I disagree on that. Which I always oh, yeah. say I think that is just is just misery. It's just miserable situations to no real purpose. Whereas this film, the story was so strong, the characters were so unique, and they're put in very hard hitting, unique situations that I haven't seen so um, situations I haven't seen so well executed and believable. Um, so I didn't feel, and the the purpose I don't think is really to pull your heartstrings. I think the purpose is just to kind of get yourself into Zane's point of view, effectively, which is so strange because Zane's twelve years old and he's like the most one of the most mature people in the whole film, and the, the whole film's just trying to transport you like through his vision. I think again, and my other problem is that the wraparound story of him trying to sue his parents just feels unnecessary. It just feels like a way to. Why do you think she put that in there, then? I don't know, because it's just... It gives the story a hook. It gives it, like, a premise that's more easier for for you to catch on to Mm -hmm. other than just showing his miserable life. Like, it's got an actual narrative angle, but... It, it doesn't serve a purpose in the film and it's forgotten for great stretches of time. Okay. No, sorry, I'm just disagreeing with you in my, in my head. Just silent. Oh. <laughs> yeah. um, Save yes, your contempt for <laughs> once the recording's done. Yeah, I think after this we could have a, a, de- a deeper discussion on it, perhaps. Um, I'm just trying to think about what Labaki is trying to get us to feel when we watch this film. I don't think she's just throwing us into this kind of tear-jerking atmosphere where we are um, sympathising. I feel like there is a social message here. How strongly does that come across? Um, I'd say pretty strongly. Uh, in terms of the social message about the way the world is and the way the world is going to continue to be, and I think it's going to continue to be this way for a very long time, which is horrific, it left me feeling absolutely awful. Um, and, and, and how do you, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It, I I can't pretend that I know everything about the world, mm-hmm. and it it is good that films like this can come along and educate you on things you're not sure about. Uh, you know, I've been educated here on something that I wasn't particularly well aware of. You know, I've read newspaper stories, things like that. It, it's nice almost that it gives me a human face to put to something because when you are reading 
news stories about things like this happening, it's all text. There's there's nothing there. You know, you might feel a bit upset about it, but then you go on to the next news story. If I ever kind of see something or read about something that ever reminds me of this again, I'm going to remember some of the scenes from this film. Cause, mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah, it's emotional manipulation to draw on the points that Alistair was making. But the way that I'm going to take it is it, this is a good emotional manipulation. This is something I should be thinking about. Because if at any point, you know, I have a way where I think, well, maybe I can do something to help or improve the lives of anyone affected by this, thinking about something like this might make me step up and give it a try rather than just clicking onto the next page. And um, I, I, I know we've talked about how kind of heartbreaking and hard-hitting it is, but one of the things that I quite liked as well is that there are little bursts every now and again of humour or of, of kindness. Like, it's not all completely doom and gloom. Is there just enough of that, or did, was there no need for that, or should we have had more of that? Um, to be honest, I'm not sure if I can remember any of the moments I mean, the, of levity. The, the cameo from the elderly man dressed as not Spider-Man is the one that... Uh, Again, but that was also kind of miserable, though. Okay. Like, uh, <laughs> forget, what I, forget I said anything. <laughs> well, there's, there's the relationship between, um, between Zane and Jonas, the little yeah. toddler. They're, when you see the two of them... It starts out for Zane that he's, you know, he's been taken in so that he's got a place to sleep, and it's in exchange for looking after Jonas. And the first day, you can see how bored he is. He's every older brother looking after a younger sibling that he doesn't want to do. But as the film goes on, you're seeing how much actually he really does care for Jonas. There's a bit where Jonas's mother goes missing, and you know he he deals with it responsibly, and then he becomes more desperate. And there's, again, moments where it goes badly, but then he, he manages to find a way to provide, and Jonas is, you know, happy again. And just seeing those little bits between the two of them and being happy together kind of lightened the mood for me. Immediately it was dispelled again afterwards, which yeah. is one of the, yeah. There's so many rug pulls. Sure, sure. <laughs> but it's really good. Okay. Well, I, I think two out of three ain't bad on this one. <laughs> we need um, to establish the meatloaf rating scale for... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Capernaum, it is uh, a wonder of a film. Um, please do support it by going to see it at the Picture House, unless you're Alistair. Um, it's showing at the Picture House only, I believe, and it is a certificate 15. Let's have a little bit of a musical interlude, shall we? Uh, we've decided today, as the Oscars are coming up, to play a couple of the nominees for you for Best Original Song. So we'll start with the one that everyone's playing everywhere. You probably know it. Um, it's from A Star Is Born, and this is... Is it called In The Shallows or just Shallows? Shallow. Shallow by Lady Gaga. <laughs> Cambridge 105 Radio. That was a lovely little musical interlude there. Were you a fan of that song, guys? Yeah, no, I, I love it. It's, it's a great pop song. Um, one of the best things that Lady Gaga has actually done in recent memory, I would say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that. She's great in that film. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. We've still got one more film to talk about in a second. But before we move on to our Netflix film of choice this week, uh, I just want to give a little shout out to Real Women, which is back after a hiatus. Um, we are back this Thursday at the Arts Picture House, nine o'clock in the bar. Please do come and join us if you don't know what Real Women is. Uh, we are a monthly short film night, which is dedicated to 
female filmmakers, which at a time when there is no female director nominated for Best Director at the Oscars, I think it's worth coming down and joining us. We've got an amazing selection of short films for you. Uh, no theme for this one because we've had a little break. We thought we'll just come in and choose some of our faves for you. Um, but it's always a really good night. We're probably going to provide snacks. I know that tends to draw the crowds in. Um, so yeah, please do come and join us for some wonderful short films, all directed by female filmmakers, Thursday the 28th of February at 9 o'clock, Arts Picture House. And thank you, Picture House, for letting us host. So now we turn our attentions to uh, our Netflix pick um, called The Breaker Upperers, which is directed and written by Madeline Sammy and Jackie Van Beek, who also star, correct? They're the two yep. leads, yes. Um, so this is a film about some best friends who are a bit cutthroat by just ruining romances for people. If you want your relationship ended, they are going to come and end it for you. Um, it's a rather cynical comedy, uh, but I think it was it was good fun. I'm going to turn to the guys now. Um, it's quite funny because before the show, we actually were, were kind of struggling on, on what we think about it, but what are our general opinion oh sorry i'm being told we need a trailer let's have a trailer <laughs> i'm jen and this is mel hey mel hey jordan how can we help i want to break up with the moment this is mel 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 what what don't forget our number one rule don't get attached oh you're a minor go you he's not a kid he's no. just a younger man oh uh, a lot younger. Disgusting. He's 18. Oh, legal. Oh, hell no! This better be Kane's at camera. That hasn't been a show since the 90s. I don't even know how you know that. <laughs> Do not talk to me, white girl. Okay, I'm not white. <laughs> this is the sort of thing that happens when you take charge, Mel! Are you guys strippers? Yes. <laughs> Maybe I should go gay. You find Kristen Stewart hot? Who's Kristen Stewart? No, no, you're not gay. I wanna smash it! Okay, thank you. We have had a trailer. <laughs> um, so, David, um, there's a certain kind of brand of comedy, I feel, that tends to come from our friends in New Zealand. Is this one a bit too crude for its own good? Uh, the the crudeness was actually something that surprised the the, the oh, I can't swear surprised the heck out of me. <laughs> it's very difficult to talk about this film without swearing. Yes, but please don't swear. I'm, I'm not going to. <laughs> heck is okay, I think. Um, it it surprised me when I went to see it. So I went to see it from the comfort of my room because it's on Netflix. Um, I think you're about twenty seconds in, and the swear was just suddenly flew out the speaker at me and uh, you know I was laughing along to it but I couldn't decide if I was just laughing because my inner child was going <laughs> swear words or <laughs> if it was because something funny was actually happening on screen. Is it all about the swear words then? Uh, it did feel like it at times but at the kind of the heart of it if we actually look at the film itself it's a very very cynical story about the uh, it's kind of the effects of what a doomed relationship for the pair of the lead characters have because they don't realise they're in the same doomed relationship and the after effects it's had, I think it's eight years later, the, mm -hmm. the film is set eight years after it's happened and so it obviously brought them together as friends the weirdest kind of best friends <laughs> I think it's fair to say um, and, uh, and how they're both trying to deal with it still by, you know, instead of looking for new romance, looking for something to block them. They're there to quash romance. They want to stamp on it until it's dead, which I think might happen at one point during the film. It's a very random film at times. Does it rely too much on its kind of rude, tr kind of comedic tropes, perhaps, Alistair? Uh, it does feel like... Sorry, I can't even speak. It does feel like that at some point, um, especially because like, the opening ten minutes has this fantastic montage of them breaking up various relationships and then it just n only focuses after that on this one specific case and it's not as funny as the others and I do think that it does need to rely on sort of crudeness and towards the end uh, in terms of one character's relationship with another a sort of taboo uh, black comic element mm -hmm. uh, to make it funny but I'll say the premise doesn't live up to how the opening 10 minutes sets it out mm -hmm. and I was you know thinking at times like 
would be far better if this was a sitcom and they were breaking up a different relationship each week because they clearly have chemistry and I would very much enjoy watching that. I just feel like they didn't focus on the right story for the film. I agree, it does start off very strongly and we've talked about that montage where they're breaking up all these different relationships and just the kind of cre- creativity and some of the ideas they had. I thought, you know, that was that was very entertaining. Did you then feel also a bit let down after that, Lorcan? Yeah, the, the closest thing I can um, compare this to is whenever like a Saturday, Saturday, Saturday Night Live sketch gets really popular and they decide to fund a movie but then they don't really know how to take that sketch and pad it out and give it any kind of substance. And it's just kind of, at least it's not the same joke over and over again. But yeah, outside of the initial conceit, they're they're struggling for a story and some kind of theme. And yeah, it does give in to the crudeness and randomness. Um, and it's it's funny in moments. The performances are endearing. Uh, it's, it's competently directed. Uh, I think I would like to see these two filmmakers and actresses uh, maybe get some help outside of like the net Netflix and like the more kind of professional film industry, and maybe kind of guide it into making something a bit more cohesive and like of substance. I think they've got a lot of potential to make something really funny. I just don't think this was the correct vehicle. I was going to ask actually because it's it's Madeline Sammy and Jackie Van Beek. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, who direct did it? They wrote the screenplay and they starred in it. So. I don't know if this is their debut. I've not heard of these filmmakers before, but would we see it as a strong start for them? I feel I feel like there's potential there, definitely. Yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely coming to international audiences due to the Taika Waititi um, producing credit. Um, but yeah, no, this it is... It does feel very Taika Waititi in places. It feels like Taika Waititi, but a lot filthier. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... Uh, and yeah, uh, there is some random stuff in it, but there isn't that same element of surreality that he has in a lot of uh, mm-hmm. his films um, but yeah no it's it's a confident debut and I would be interested in seeing what else they would do I just feel like they've clearly got a good idea for premises I just wish that they had the, the story to actually back it up but it is nice to see this kind of female led buddy comedy I know I'm not saying that we don't see it much but I'm just saying it's it's kind of a fresh take no? Yes? You're kind of staring at me. I'm, I'm trying to think of something useful to say. Okay, I'm struggling. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, if I can jump back in again. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a buddy comedy, but for the vast majority of the film, they are, like, pretty much enemies with each other. They have a vast <laughs> falling out maybe a third of the way into the film. And, yeah, they have fantastic chemistry together, and the film doesn't always play to that strength, mm. I don't think. It's it's very this the what kind of story they did is very pedestrian. It's like as soon as you start watching the movie, you know what the movie's going to be, uh, and you know they're gonna like gonna be like have have fun at the start, and then the tensions will rise, and then they'll have a breakup, and then the ending's gonna be the reconciliation. So it's very kind of standard. Um, but outside outside of the kind of standard standard story, like I think I still think the filmmaking is strong and yeah. they're clearly having a lot of fun with their actors they let their actors just play around and you can tell a lot of the stuff kind of feels unscripted and they're just kind of goofing off which is nice and refreshing yeah. especially for a buddy comedy yeah it's good fun i would recommend it as a kind of i don't know thursday night in watch on netflix um the enthusiasm is just dripping off all of your lips <laughs> to be honest. No, no, it's, it's <laughs> a solid uh, beer and a pizza movie yeah okay Great. Solid beer and pizza movie. Put it on the poster. Uh, the Breaker Uppers is available on Netflix, so you can watch it from the comfort of your own sofa with a beer and a pizza. Um, it's a Certificate 15. Right. We are about to go in on these Oscar nominations, but let's have a little pause and have a little musical interlude again uh, I'm really happy to say that Kendrick Lamar is an Oscar nominee uh, for this song from Black Panther which is also nominated in Best Picture and uh, we may have a little bit of a discussion on that particular choice uh, later on um, but this is All the Stars Yeah. 
albums on seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Well, wasn't that lovely? Oscar nominee Kendrick Lamar and SZA um, for all the stars. Do we like that song, guys? Are we a fan? Yeah, <laughs> the, the enthusiasm is off so the chart. Enthusiasm yeah. today. Um, we'll, well, now that we've played two of the nominees, let's have a look at the five that we've got here, and then you guys can tell me your favourite. Uh, we've got "I'll Fight" by Diane Warren, which is from uh, RBG, RBG, I think, the documentary. Yep. Uh, and then we've got "All the Stars," which we just played for you from Black Panther by Kendrick Lamar, Scissor, and Scissor. Um, the place where lost things go. What's that from? Uh, from Mary Poppins Thank Returns. you. I've not seen that. And uh, When a Cowboy Trades His Spurs from the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which you can see on Netflix. Um, and Shallow, which we played for you earlier, Lady Gaga. I did not know that Mark Ronson uh, wrote that also, with her. Also, Mark Ronson and the drummer from the Libertines. I mean, that's pretty special. Well. I thought it was just her, but no. A very talented bunch. Um, for Shallow, from A Star Is Born. Right, everyone, who do you think's winning? Who should win? Um, well, I mean, this is... Pretty much this and Best Director are the two obvious wins. Like, Lady Gaga is walking, but I think this might be the only uh, A Star Is Born win on Oscar night. It's gone from being a frontrunner to now just losing most of the awards it's nominated what happened because it was i mean when the film came out i mean when was it september time october time everyone was saying it was a shoo-in it was going to win all these awards and now it's kind of just sort of bumbled into the background yeah it's done that and in terms of musicals it's been replaced by bohemian rhapsody inexplicably a film that film people really do not like (laughs) and yet is pretty much sweeping the board um at award ceremonies and yeah it's yeah, I'd, I'd take A Star Is Born over Bohemian Rhapsody any day of the week. So uh, you think Shallow's winning and you like that it's going to win? Um, yeah, um, I think it would still be great if uh, Tim Blake Nelson could win for when a cowboy trades his spurs. Not names, happening. Because that would be the most insane Oscar win in recent memory. That would be, but not happening. I'm sorry. Uh, Dave, looking at you. Uh, I, I too would like Tim Blake Nelson. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I no. Uh, I'm just Disappointment all around. I, I'm just looking forward to hopefully seeing him perform it at the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Which it will be almost as good as when Robin Williams came on to do Blaine Canada for South Park because they couldn't <laughs> get their really good song nominated because of all the swearing. I can't even name the song on the radio because yeah. of the swearing. But... I'm, you know, I'm with Alistair here. It's going to be shallow, I think. And, yeah. Uh, really annoying for Diane Warren there. She's nominated. She's nominated so many times and she's never won. Diane yeah. Warren actually wrote a song for the Star Is Born soundtrack. She wrote the rubbish uh, pop song that <laughs> Lady Gaga performed on the Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Oh. Um, Lorcan, you fan of the, Are you thinking it's shallow? Um, shallow? I haven't actually uh, caught Star Is Born yet, but it seems to be the runaway favourite. Yeah. Everyone just seems to not even count any of the other songs in terms of like the conversation. Yeah. Um, I can't. What? Which Mary Poppins song is? I can't remember which one that I is. I have no idea. They all blended into one for me. I have a hard time remembering. Place where last them. things go. The only the only one I remember is that, and I don't remember what the tune sounds like, but there was one where it was just Ben Wishaw mumbling in an attic. Oh, that, I like that one. Yeah. I can't remember it. Yeah, I liked it. I, I, don't, I don't think it's that song. It, apparently, it's the sad one about their their mother. Um. Yeah, I actually haven't seen Mary Poppins, so I I can't be much help here. Um, But they will be performing, some of them, not all of them, at the Oscars. I think Lady Gaga definitely will be singing. Uh, You are looking forward to the Ballad of Buster Scruggs song, Dave, being performed live. Fingers crossed, Tim Blake Nelson on stage, warbling away. Ascending to heaven at the end. (laughs) Sadly, no Kendrick. Which I'm disappointed about. Uh, he does. He's not. He's chosen not to perform at the Oscars this year, uh, and he also missed the Grammy. So come on, Kendrick. What's up? Tell us. It's okay. Come back to us. Uh, right. Let's go in on the Best Picture nominees, shall we? There are eight of them: Bohemian Rhapsody, Black Panther, The Favorite, Black Klansman, Green Book, Vice, A Star Is Born, and Roma. Now, I'm still pretty confident that Roma is going to win and I would like Roma to... Well, I'm, I'm for Roma or Black Klansman, basically, but I don't think Black Klansman has a chance. Um, but Roma would be a fantastic win, I think, because that film, to me, was just magnificent. Anybody who knows me will know what I think of that film. Uh, but other people are telling me it's going to be the favourite. So what do we all think? I agree that Roma's wonderful, um, 
I don't think it's going to win because for the past few years, the film that's won Best Film at the BAFTAs is always the front runner for the Oscars, mm-hmm. and then it always loses the Oscar. You okay. think back to La La Land winning the BAFTA, Moonlight getting the Oscar, yeah. or last year when Three Billboards got the BAFTA, and then The Shape of Water got the Oscar. Yeah. Um, Alfonso Cuaron will definitely get director, alongside Lady Gaga getting Best Song. That is pretty much a lock for the evening. Yeah. Um, but what we have to consider when trying to decide what Best Picture is, they don't just like put down their favourite. Um, every member of the Academy has to rank each of the eight nominees in yeah. order of preference. Yeah. So you have to think about the film that will get the most third or fourth place votes rather yeah. than the ones that will get most or least. And that's why I'm leaning towards the favourite, which would be my personal first place, place pick. But I think most people would probably have it like third or fourth. Okay. Because there's a lot of divisive films that would be in first place or last place yeah. this year. Okay. Uh, Favourite Yorgos Lanthimos's film about Queen Anne with Olivia Colman. It seems to be quite popular. I think that's my favourite of the bunch, but I don't think it's going to win best film. I think, uh, I think personally, I think Green Book's the most likely to win because it's the most palatable <laughs> bland thing <laughs> imaginable. Remember, they have what? to rank I, them. I, I have, have to, rank to say, them. I think you've got a point there. And, it, and also, your ranking thing could put Green Book quite ahead. Because it's... I mean, I just had a look at the bookies' favourites the other day, and I was shocked to see Green Book was actually second in terms of what could win Best Picture. I saw Green Book, I thought it was fine. I thought it was sweet. I absolutely love the performances. We'll come on to those in a sec. But is it best picture worthy? It's in terms of the Oscars, I think yes. In terms of the Oscars. <laughs> of the Oscars. Yes. Um okay, so we've got one for the fav no, two for the favourite here, Dave. Uh I'm like you. I want it to be Roma. Mm-hmm. However, I think the Academy is gonna bail and give that best foreign language as kind of like a fallback, oh. which is a real shame. At which point, I'd really want it to go to Black Panther <laughs> because of me, but that's never going to happen. I thought you were going to say they were going to Bale and give it to Christian Bale in Vice. <laughs> oh, um. no, no. I don't know about Vice at all. Uh, I haven't seen it. Uh, I think we're probably looking at either Green Book or A Star Is Born, maybe, Ooh. still, because Cooper got snubbed for director, and a lot of people are wondering about that because they said he did a really it's, good job. It's the Argo thing when Van Affleck didn't get a director nomination and then... Yeah, the so there, there's that kind of parallel to draw. I also really hope there's an outside shot for Black Klansman because I've only just seen it today, this morning, before what the show. What do you think? Let's talk about Black Klansman. I thought it was brilliant. It's fantastic. Brilliant. And that also gives Spike Lee an outside shot on the director's nod as well. Oh. He could push Kawar on the side. I, I mean, my one of my... I have wild cards every year where I know it's probably not going to happen, but I just throw it in. Spike Lee for Best Director would be incredible, I think. I'm not sure it would happen. It could happen, who knows? But can you imagine? That would be so awesome. Well, Spike Lee still has a strong chance of getting an Oscar because he wrote the screenplay, which is nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, and I think he's very much the favourite to win that category. So Spike's Oscar is within grasp. Yeah, but maybe not for the maybe not for directing, but no. still very worthy. No, um, interesting that you said that you you like Black Panther because we had uh, last time we talked about when the nominees came out, we had Mr. Rowan Lamb on the show, and uh, he was not very happy about the Black Panther nomination at all. He said not only is it not best picture worthy, but it's not even the best Marvel film to have come out in two thousand and eighteen. Discuss. Well, that's because the best Marvel film of last year was Spider-Man Into the Multiverse. But Which is in best animated feature. Yeah, I yes. have notes on that as well. Oh, excellent. <laughs> um, it, the animated feature is a two-film race for me between Spider-Man and Isle of Dogs. But that's just for me. In the past few years, animated feature has felt like it's been a box-ticking exercise of will it go to you know, the cute Disney film, yeah. the cute DreamWorks film, or possibly the cute Warner Brothers film, I think. I think the last time we had something win that was a bit different was Rango back in 2011, and then yeah. you have to go back to 2008 for Curse of the Were-Rabbit. Yeah. So we're talking, you know, almost 10 years for something different to show up. Yeah. And we've got two this year. We've got Isle of Dogs and Spider-Man, which is not just a really good animated film. It's a really good film 
hands down. I'm very annoyed it didn't get a Best Score nomination as and well. It, a Best Adapted Screenplay nomination as well. It genuinely deserved more than just Best Animated Feature. It's mm. one of the best films nominated. Best Animated Feature, we've got The Incredibles 2. I haven't actually seen many of these. Isle of Dogs, Mirai, Ralph Breaks the Internet, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I personally think it's going to Spidey. Yeah, I, that that's my hope. Mostly because Incredibles and Ralph are both sequels, so they're kind of, you know, they could just get shoved aside in favour of something fresh and new. But Isle of Dogs is genius as yes. well. And, and Wes you, Anderson you... hasn't got an Oscar, so they could, be, they could be thinking about that too. Has he never got an Oscar? I don't believe he has, no. Okay. Um, all right, so uh, let's look at director then. We've got Spike, no female directors, which is just absolutely insane. I mean, there have been some really great films last year that were nominated, uh, that were directed by women. I mean, You Were Never Really Here, which for me was one of my top, top films of the year. Um, Lynn Ramsey, uh, can't think of the other one that I really wanted to say but I'll, I'll get to it um, so anyway let's have a look at who we've got Spike Lee Black Klansman Pavel Pavlikowski for Cold War uh, Yorgos Lanthimos for The Favourite Alfonso Cuaron for Roma and Adam McKay for Vice um, Cold War's a, a, a nice one in there I think uh, did anyone see that film? Yes. Yeah, that was actually the last Bums on Seats I was on. Oh, was really? The review of Cold War. Yeah. Oh, welcome back. Um, if I believe correctly, uh, Locken really did not like that film. Okay. I thought it was fine. I hated Ida, his last film. <laughs> did I really you? hated Ida. Why? I thought. He, oh god, I thought, most, was I thought it was spectacularly it. pretentious. Oh, okay. <laughs> he's, he's, I think he's an. He's uh, visually he's very talented, but I think he should stay far away from story and character. Um, I thought he's got he's, he likes doing this thing of like using lots of negative space in his shots, but I think he took it to like a very very much a logical extreme with Ida. Okay. Yeah, and uh, I know we're pressed for time, so I will quickly say this is a Quaron lock, and I'm fine with Quaron winning. But I agree with you. You were never really here. One of the best films of last year. Um, Lynn Ramsey, best director of last year. Yeah. I would have given it to her. Very sad that she's not nominated. Now, I'm just, I mean, we could talk about this all day and we probably will after this show, but let's quickly look at some of these acting nominations. I mean, I'm not going to go through all of them. Why don't you guys tell me what your standout performances of the year have been? Let's start with Mr. O'Neill, or who's frowning at me. Who um, I think, um, I think this, despite the film, I think Vigo Mortensen, Mortensen, uh, probably deserves a nod out of all of the leading men i thought christian bale was pretty bad in vice um i think he you thought he was bad i think he confuses a mannerism for a character oh. um, i also i thought rami malek did a half decent impersonation i don't think his acting chops were really up to the he's challenge suddenly surging that's like, strange he, he won the bafta now everyone's talking about him he could go home with the oscar for best um, best actor. It's looking like he probably will as well, but I, I'm more confused by that than anything else. I don't know who's voting for him. It's, a, sat just... it's a Saturday Night Live performance. That's what it is. It's, yeah. like, it's an SNL impersonation. Well, I, I actually... <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody is the one picture nominee that I've not seen, so I can't tell you anything. I just know that Rami Malek seems to be the favourite now to, to win the whole thing. Um, when we look at lead actress i'm i know she's not going to win but i'm just so thrilled to see that yulitsa aparicio from roma has been nominated her very first acting performance ever um in such a wonderful film as roma and she is um she's nominated and she was amazing yes. but it's such a just a subtle and powerful performance yeah. that usually yeah. gets overlooked by the academy so beautiful performance yeah really nice but i think actually looking at the list i think it might be going to glenn close for the wife? I think if it is, it'll be the uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. She's been nominated so many times, and maybe this isn't her best performance, but they're probably going to give it to her. Um, but I think that's probably between her and Olivia Coleman. Yeah, because Coleman, he said Coleman won the BAFTA. She Coleman got a Golden Globe. I think it's a two horse race, and in a, if you excuse the pun, I think the race is close. Yeah. Okay. Oh. <laughs> okay. I just got that. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that was too just bad. staring at you, waiting for you to get it. Oh dear. <laughs> um, yeah. It, well, yeah. It's either going to be Coleman or Close, uh, but I, I do think they're going to give it to Close just because it's one of those kind of long-awaited "let's give her an Oscar" type award supporting actor. I think it's pretty much locked for um, Mahershala Ali from Green Book. 
I don't really see anybody else at the moment. I really want it to go to Sam Elliott. Do you? That, oh, that, that one bit in scene. The Star is Born yeah. when he's in the car. You know, he oh. turns around and the emotion on his face and just the, the whole kind of dynamic between him and Bradley Cooper is kind of... They're, they're brothers, they're, they're at war with each other, but they're still brothers and they still love each other and it all comes across in that one scene in yeah. my heart. Tore into. I, I got teary at that scene. That was yeah. wonderful. For I him. would go for Richard E. Grant by far the best performance in that category. Who's uh, both really, really funny, and also just has like a real undercurrent of pathos. And his entire Oscar campaign on Twitter is just the most heartwarming thing. He's so happy to be nominated for an Oscar. He's the only person that deserves to win because he's the nicest. <laughs> <laughs> he's the nicest. You know them all personally. Yeah. <laughs> um, and quickly, supporting actress, I'm just seeing that we're running out of time, sadly. Um, I think it's going to Regina King in If Beale Street Could Talk. But obviously we've got Emma Stone, Rachel Weisz from The Favourite, Amy Adams, poor Amy Adams. I mean, she's been nominated 3,000 times and she's never won anything so sad times uh, but look it's time to go we're going to continue this conversation at the pub I think uh, but the Oscars are happening tomorrow night